Good morning, everybody. We are continuing with our study of the book of Hebrews, a um, book I love very much, and uh, I'm excited about it. We've uh, already done an intro. We've done a chapter one. We're going to do this chapter by chapter, and uh, just kind of so you know how, how we're approaching this, um, we're doing some in-depth, uh, not a lot of time, you know, uh, even just breaking down chapter by chapter. Uh, these will be about 30, 20 to 30 minutes long, and uh, we'll go as deep as we can go. If you want to go deeper, I really recommend you buy the book, buy my book, uh, by myself and John Oaks. We wrote a book together on the commentary on the book of Hebrews, Living by Faith, it's called. Um, you can get it through IPI. But um, um, so we'll, we'll go we'll go somewhat deep, and, and there's some more treasures. I'm not giving you all the treasures, but I'll give you definitely some that we can uh, dig into. So uh, if you can open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter two, I'm not going to put it all on the screen. It's too much writing. Uh, Chapter two is a long chapter and uh, it's just got a lot of great stuff in it. Um, Appreciate so much uh, what we're learning and what we're getting out of this. Um, So chapter, you know, chapter one, he jumps into the argument of Jesus being greater, Jesus being more, um, and, uh, and then chapter two, we get the first of five warnings. Uh, there's five warnings scattered to the book of Hebrews. Uh, anytime you see the number five, you got to wonder, is it associated with the, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible? The f- number five is very important, um, because it's, it's the way the, the old Testament was, was originally put together. The Pentateuch. Um, we, of course, Jews don't call it Old Testament. It's just called the Bible, but we call it the Old Testament. So he starts out with the first warning. Um, and he's, and he, and he says, uh, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Um, now I, I said in the beginning, uh, when I did the introduction that, that you're, that we run into a, a number of, vocabulary words that are nautical terms. Well, here's one of the best examples of that. There's a, there's a word prosechein, which is to moor a ship, and pyrein is the tide, the drift of the tide. And he and he basically uses those those words to describe what, what we've got to watch out for. We've got to make sure that we are moored. What does moored mean? Moored means that you're properly tied to the dock or you're properly anchored to something that you, you you're solid in there, and that and so that you don't get carried out with the tide. Of course, what happens to a boat if it's not properly moored? Well, the tide goes out and it takes the boat with it, right? And the boat is lost. And uh, he says he says we've got to pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Um, I usually this is usually about chapter two. You know, I've already usually been when I'm doing this live, I'm. I've already been speaking about an hour, two hours, and and I'll just yell out really loud, wake up, you know, because that's basically what he's saying at this point, is don't space out. Don't be the one who didn't pay attention and drifted away. You know, because Christians don't just wake up one day and decide to fall away. We drift away. Because we got into this after thinking it through, praying it through, making a solid decision. We made a commitment. And we got baptized and we said, we're going to be Christians the rest of our life. And then something happens and then something else happens and something else happens. And little by little, 
we can drift away. Now, if we're paying attention, we catch it early. We catch it early. We're drifting. If you have good relationships, they catch it early when you're drifting. You know, the, the, the big giant ships, they have these, uh, they have these, these monitors that as soon as it starts to go one direction, dee, 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 you know, they go off. That's like having good spiritual friends. They catch you when you're starting to drift. Like, hey, bro, how are you doing? Hey, what's going on, sister? Hey, you know, they, they notice that you're drifting. Um, the thing about drifting is you often don't notice, you know, you ever been on a river raft and you're, you know, you don't even really, you look around and you've drifted a couple of miles down the river and you didn't even know it, you know, uh, because it's not noticeable or you go to the beach and you're on a tube. And the next thing you know, you're way far from the beach. It's very, very easy to happen. And so the warning is we need to pay attention. We need to be mindful and ask ourselves, how am I doing? How am I doing spiritually? What's going on with me? Am I drifting? Has that, you know, there's a, there's a thing called mission drift in the organizational world, in the science of leadership and organization. And it's what happens to organizations when they're not paying attention and they're no longer what they thought they were. They're no longer, you know, they have a, they, they almost thought every organization usually has a vision statement or a mission statement. And little by little, they drift from that. It's called mission drift. They're no longer really living out their mission anymore. They've caught up in other stuff. And it can happen to anybody, even as Christians. We, we, we forget, what, what is my mission? I'm here to walk with God, to worship God, and to make disciples. The two great, the great commandment and the great commission, right? I mean, the great commandment, yeah, and the, and the great commission, uh, that I'm here to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I'm here to go make disciples and help other people to love God. And the question is, is my life still devoted to that? Or am I suffering from mission drift? I think a lot of us in the church are, lately have, have been waking up realizing I'm drifting. I may not be totally drifting from God, but I'm certainly drifting from the mission. What's my purpose here? So that's what he's saying. He's saying, wake up. Hey, pay attention. Don't space out. Make sure you're on, you're on your mission. Make sure you're properly moored, that you're doing what you want to be doing. He says, for since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? You know, he, he talks about disobedience and violation. Violation is, is, uh, there's two different Greek words he uses here. Violation is just kind of ignorant. Oh, did I mess up? You know, it's like, oh, I forgot to renew my tags and on my license plate and I didn't go get that done. I'm sorry, officer, and I'll go do it. And you hope maybe they'll let you off the hook. Maybe not. That's kind of an ignorant fault. Then there's disobedience, which the word in the Greek for disobedience, it's a much stronger word. It's a rebellion. It's a, I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm not doing that. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this instead. So when we know better and we're doing wrong and when we know better, it's deliberate sinning. You got to watch out for that. Later on comes one of the scariest warnings in the entire Bible. You know, people always say that, that, uh, I hear people say, you know, God was really grouchy and mean in the Old Testament, and then he became a Christian. He's really nice in the New Testament. Um, God does not change. He does not change. Same God. Different situations. God is the God of love, devotion, kindness, grace, 
mercy, patience, devotion, but you don't rebel against God. That's still no. We don't lie to God. We don't betray God. We don't turn our back. He, Book of Hebrews has some of those strong warnings, like if, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have knowledge of the truth, what comes next is not good. So anyways, so right here, we're not going to go, we're not going to jump to that. That's chapter six. Um, but he says, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed by us to those who heard him. You know, this salvation that, 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 um, Jesus brought to us the son of God. Remember, he just made this whole argument of how Jesus is greater than all the prophets, than all the angels. Okay. If they got in trouble before for not listening to the angels, who did the, who, who got messages from the angels? Everybody did. Abraham, Moses, uh, I mean, everybody did. Joseph, they, they all got it from angels. If they got in trouble for disobeying the angels, how much more do you think we're going to get in trouble for disobeying the Son of God? So that was his point: is 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 pay attention, uh, make sure that we 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 treat Jesus the way he should be treated with absolute obedience. And then he says, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And in, in basically, you know, showing that, that, you know, we, we've heard this message either directly from Jesus or people who heard it. In this case, he says, it was confirmed to us by those who had heard him. And then this kind of also shows you that, that it's second or third generation Christians. Remember how I said at the introduction that these were, these were not people who were at the cross. These were not people from Jerusalem. That's how we know, even though it's called Hebrews and it's written to Jews, it's not written to the Jews of Israel, not written to the Jews of Jerusalem, really, because these people weren't there. These people heard it second or third hand, the same way we hear it, we heard it second or third hand. None of us were at the hill watching Jesus be crucified, but we heard it through people, the message through people, which is the normal way God works. Most of the time, when God is trying to get a message to us, he sends somebody. He puts it on somebody's heart. He directs somebody. Uh, I know we'd all like our own personal visit from God. We'd all like an angel to appear in our room. We'd all like writing on the wall. We'd all like a burning bush. But truthfully, those things rarely happen. In all the creation of the world, among the billions of people who've been alive, only a handful of people get a personal visit from God. The other billions of people have to rely on somebody that God sends. That's the way I came. And it works. So we keep reading on. So that's the end. That's the first part of chapter two. Then he says, it is not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. Verse six, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than angels. You crowned him the glory with glory and honor and put everything under their feet in putting everything under them. Now this is set apart as a song, as a poem, okay? Sometimes, again, remember that that um, whenever we read the Bible, it's also important to know what kind of literature is this. And I know when we say literature, it sounds like we're talking about it's 
man written or something. No, I mean, the Holy Spirit writes literature, writes poems, writes songs, writes a lot of different things. And it's important to know what they are. Like when you read the beginning of Genesis, it's important to know that that's poetry. That's not, it's not the Encyclopedia Britannica. So, so when you read roses are red, violets are blue, whatever, whatever, I love you. It, it's not a scientific journal of what color are roses. Uh, that's not what you would use to prove that all roses are red because it's a poem. It's not that purpose. It doesn't have that purpose. Same thing when you're reading uh, things according to what kind of literature it is. How is it supposed to be read? So we get this 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 poetry, right? And he's quoting the Old Testament again. And, he's, and, he, and the writer of Hebrews is just a master at weaving scripture together. To make it all flow, and uh, and we learn a lot. We actually learn a lot about how to use the Old Testament from the Book of Hebrews. And he says, "In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them." Okay, he's talking about the glory, the good, the how awesome angels are, and how powerful they are, how incredible they are. You know, um, um, and yet. Everything doesn't answer to them, but who does everything answer to? Jesus, right? He says, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, but now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. He said, so even Jesus came down, became lowly, lowly, was like us, a human. Uh, But now he's crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He would be the death taster for everyone. He went to death for everyone. He took on death for everyone. He conquered death for everyone. He overcame death for everyone so that everyone who is his and everyone who is a Christian, everyone who is right with God, need not fear death. We have had victory over death. And there's more to say on that later, but that's very important. Don't miss that. Those, that's why I tell you, every sentence in the Bible is there for a reason. It's there for a purpose. And every sentence is loaded with something. You say, well, aren't there filler sentences? Yeah, but they're usually leading up to something. They're pointing to something that's big. And, and this is a big one. Again, don't have time to camp out here because, uh, uh, we're limited on time. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and the one who, the one, those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus not is, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. This is incredibly powerful. You know, I said at the, at the introduction that that no other book paints a picture so clearly in the same book, in the same chapter of the deity of God, the power of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and the humanity of Jesus, meaning that he was just a person, and he suffered just like we do, and he went through pain, and he went through things just like we do. I mean, the book of Hebrews really kind of gives you a broad a broad view of all that Jesus is. That, that you know, he, he's telling us that he made him go to death for everyone. 
I mean, death makes no sense to God, the creator of the universe, the father of all creation, but it does to God as a human. And a human being, death is huge. And he, and he says that, um, he says, he made him the pioneer of their salvation. The pioneer, the, I love that word, it's the, the, the archagos is, is actually the word in Greek. It's the, the very first to travel this, the pathfinder, the path cutter, the, 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 the pioneer. I love pioneer because it's just, who were the pioneers? Well, in American history, pioneers were the people who went west, right? Um, or like even better word is the pathfinder. The one, the first one to go to cross this mountain and create a path. Truthfully, even when the pioneers, they, when they went, they took Indian trails. Um, but somebody was the first to cross that mountain and cut the path. That's the Archegos, the very first one. So Jesus is the first one to cut the path for us. Jesus is the first one to take that road, right? And, and, and he says, um, that he says everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now this, this one is just a powerfully loaded theology here of how Jesus is made perfect through suffering. Now keep in mind the word perfect is the Greek word teleos is the concept there is not what we think of as perfect. We think of perfect as flawless, but the way they thought of the word perfect is fully matured or fully developed at its at its fully developed state that's that's actually what mature means or perfect means in greek the tele, the word teleosis okay and 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 so jesus was made fully mature through his suffering it was like uh for him to really be the author the perfecter the pioneer of our faith, the Savior that we need, he had to suffer. That's intense. That's intense. Even as a principle, there is no maturity without suffering. Um, I was sitting on a council, not a council, but a, a, a like a, it was a, a table of, a, of older ministry people that were being asked by young ministry people questions about the future and about life and about being in the ministry. And uh, somebody asked me specifically, they said they wanted to ask me the question, what would I say to the generation, to the millennials? Because I love millennials and, and I'm very positive about millennials and, and, and they tend to get beat up on by, by church leaders because of their weaknesses. And, 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 um, but I also see their strengths, beautiful strengths, the way they, they do see the world as a community and they are much more diverse and diverse oriented and and they appreciate people more and they are much more just in their thinking and they concerned about all people and the concern for animals and concern for the earth. There's just many things about millennials alike. But they asked me, um, what would I say to the millennial generation or generation Z? And uh and I and and my answer was simple. I said, I, th- I think you guys have to embrace suffering. I think that if you're not willing to suffer, there's things you're not going to learn. And we grew up, mostly grew up, most of us, all of us grew up in a world where uh, we avoid suffering at all costs. We take a pill so we don't have to suffer. Uh, we don't even want the symptoms, let alone the suffering. We take pills for symptoms, 
uh, we 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 want to avoid any kind of pain and any kind of suffering, and we want things easy, and we want things instantaneous, and and especially I would say the millennial generation Z grew up like that even more so, but is going to have to embrace suffering because it's just part of growing and maturing, and Jesus himself, if he had to suffer to be mature. I think I'm going to have to suffer mature. And I have suffered. And some of the things that I've suffered have really taught me a lot to be able to be the man that I want to be. And so Jesus was made perfect through suffering. That's just mind-blowing. And he says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So he says, basically, Jesus is the one who, who, who sanctified himself by suffering and those who've been sanctified by him through his suffering were of the same family. I mean, you know that when you suffer with people, it creates a bond. You get tight. You get close to each other. There's something that very bonding about suffering. Um, that's why war buddies are so close. Guys who come back from war, they're so close to each other. And in fact, it's very hard for them to get close to other people because that bond that's created in suffering. Uh, I mean, we even know it in just even things like a road trip together where it's not hard suffering, but you're you're not in your normal life and you're maybe you don't get to bathe and you don't get to comb your hair and you don't get to do all these things that you normally do to take care of yourself, that you go through that experience together. It's a bonding time. But uh, I love movies like Band of Brothers. You know, those guys, they went from fighting with each other not liking each other, competing with each other, to just totally devoted to each other because of what they suffered through World War II, you know, and, and, and there are many stories like that, right? So God makes us his family in a different way, in a special way. And he says, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, you know, that, that, that we're, that we are, that, that we've gone through this together. It gives a camaraderie. That we are the ones who've suffered together. And I think this is important here because remember the background of, of being a Christian is going to bring on more suffering. And they were shrinking back from that. And, and I think he's subtly reminding them, look, if you don't suffer, you're not part of this family. I mean, part of the family of Jesus is suffering. It's part of what makes you family. Right. I mean, there's certain attributes that everybody knows the Carrillos, right? The Carrillos like certain things. And, and it's so funny because we're known. My family is known for certain qualities and certain characteristics. And that's what makes you a Carrillo, you know, even silly things like we love Lord of the Rings. We all watch Lord of the Rings on the holidays. Doesn't matter how many times we've seen it. We watch it again and again. That's a Carrillo thing. And if you watch the Lord of the Rings, if you're going to be a Creole, you got to watch Lord of the Rings and you got to love it. Right. And, and those are just, every family has those things, those idiosyncrasies. And he's basically saying here, one of our idiosyncrasies as a Christian is we suffer together. So don't back away from suffering. And so he's saying this. And then he says, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I, here am I and the children God has given me. And again, he's weaving in scripture here. And it's particularly for the Jews who grew up with these scriptures. He's attaching, he's anchoring his argument in the Old Testament. And he's and, and I don't have time to go into all of this. Uh, again, read the book. 
Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. This is powerful. This is verse 14. He says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. You know, in one sense, how how does a God who is bodiless, who's um, omnipotent, omniscient, omniscient, who is... uh is just everywhere, all time, omniscient. Under how do I relate to him? I don't, because I'm nowhere near that. I'm I'm grasping to understand him at all. But a God who comes down and becomes flesh and lives as a man, that I can see and understand, that I can know, and know that he knows me and knows that he understands what I've been through. He says he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. So he became one of us and took on our worst fears and broke the hold that our worst fear of death has on us. So it's like God shrunk down. If I wanted to save an anthill and I'm trying to get those little ants out of there because I know my whole yard's about to be rototilled and their little calling is going to be wiped out. I could stand there and yell at them, and they're not going to understand me. Or I could become an ant and go down there and communicate with them in their little ways of communication. Okay, that's basically what God did for us. And he came down. But here's the incredible thing is that he shared in our humanity. In other words, he was willing to suffer everything it is to be a human. He was willing to go through everything that we go through just to be able to save us and to show us a way out, to be that pathfinder. And he says, that is the devil. It says, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them and fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And you got to love this. Jesus understands us because he knows what it's like to be us. He, he, he went through all that is human in every way, it says. And in order that he might become a merciful, he gets it. You know, when 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 you want to share a struggle you have, when you want to talk to somebody about a sin that you're struggling with, or a weakness that you have, or something that you just can't seem to change or overcome, you don't want to talk to somebody who doesn't understand, who never struggled with that. You know, it's why why do people that lead chemical recovery groups like CR groups or Alcoholics Anonymous groups. They're always people who are themselves recovered alcoholics or recovered addicts. Why? Because they understand. They relate. They know. You don't really want to confess your sin to somebody who's never done drugs about your addiction. Really, you want somebody who understands the struggle with that. Not that they can't help you. They can help you. I mean, God doesn't sin, so he, he, he understands us. But where you feel most comfortable is with somebody that you know is going to relate, 
right? I remember this time um, we Michelle and I spoke at a uh, we did a marriage retreat in Boston. I think it was the Northern Region, and um, and in the class, Michelle and I both spoke, and in her class, she shared about what it was like living with a chronic illness, and people questioned her commitment, people questioned her her devotion and stuff. When, when it was very difficult sometimes for her just to get to church because of her health issues and how hard that was on her. After the lesson, she had like 50 women surrounding her trying to talk to her. And it, it hit me. I thought, wow, this is amazing. She hit a nerve. What was that nerve? All these women with chronic illnesses that felt misunderstood. And they saw a leader, a church leader, who finally understood what it was like to live with chronic illness. That relatability was gold to them. That's the way we are. Jesus relates to us. He gets us. And even, even in the last sentence it says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Even in temptation, he gets us. He understands what it's like to be tempted. And he did all that without ever sinning. That's pretty awesome. That's the one I can follow. That's the path maker. That's the pioneer that we can all follow. So that's the end of chapter two. I hope that helped you. And I hope that blesses you.